are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. And we are on page 55 this evening. We're at the very end of hypothesis number three. And we have been discussing uh, the avoidance of idleness. And we'll be getting into uh, work in general and how it is that we approach it. And again, even though these are written in large part for for monks or those living the monastic life uh i think this certainly speaks to all of us uh, given that this is a big part of our life that there would be something that would be distinct about how uh, a christian would engage in labor and uh the grace of God has and does touch everything that we do as human beings. And so we would think that there would be something unique, dis distinct uh, about the, the way that we approach work and what we are seeking as an end uh, of it, but also how we engage in it uh, as we are doing it. And this all comes forward in just about every perspective that one can imagine here in the coming hypotheses. They're a little bit shorter in length, uh, dealing with individual subjects as we go along. But again, we're on 55, uh, with number two at the very top of the page. The heresy of Messalinianism does not allow its followers to labor. These heretics teach that one must pray continuously and despise work. Uh, this has cropped up occasionally within the life of the church, a kind of quietism, perhaps, uh, where, you know, one thinks that one can live as an angel rather than imitating an angel in the sense of being uh, focused upon God and attentive to God and seeking to have our life be uh, constant prayer. Uh, but as human beings, we are also called to labor, to earn our own keep, uh, to be able to feed ourselves and to feed those in our care. We're not uh, called to sit on our hands and allow others to take care of us. And, uh, and so it's an interesting thing, you know, coming from those who uh, live uh, a life of solitude and uh, hiddenness, uh, that they would spend so much time on, on work, but they understood that uh, this is going, was going to involve a good amount of their time, uh, but also that it involves the body and 
and the mind and so that how we engage in it is important if we are, are seeking to do it in a way that's pleasing to god but also that we don't lose our attention uh, on god or our remembrance of him in the midst of it from saint ephraim the syrian to close this hypothesis O monk, do not offer as an excuse for idleness the fact that you are ill. For Holy Scripture says, thou hast given him his heart's desire. Brothers, let us not scorn the grace of God, which grants us the strength to work good. Indeed, with this power, let us work good and continually thank Christ. In Holy Scripture, it is written, labor not for food which perisheth but that for that food which endureth unto everlasting life. Make your hands to labor to do good, so that he who has need of bread will have it, so that your heart might be ceaselessly devoted to the Lord. For then you shall truly work for that nourishment which remains everlasting, and not for that nourishment which is lost together with the body. So labor not to find rest, that is, so as to manage to live without work, because idleness betokens great evil. So a number of things. I mean, Ephraim is certainly one of the great writers, and often throughout this text, in a simple paragraph, he'll bring forward many different things for us. And the first is what we've already talked about once, illness, uh, that... Uh, we labor in such a way that we, we don't allow certain things to become excuses for idleness or for laziness. And uh, sometimes when we are feeling under the weather, uh, we can use that as uh, a reasonable lie uh, to step out of work, if you will. I'm not feeling good. I'm not feeling well. And uh, rather than uh, maybe reducing the amount of work or working at a different pace, we will step out of work all together. And, uh, and so there's a difference, certainly in giving ourselves the rest we need and then falling into a kind of idleness that opens us up uh, to temptation, to the wandering of our thoughts. And so even if we are uh, pretty reduced because of an illness, we would still want to be engaged in some kind of labor to keep ourselves attentive. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, praying the chotki or the rosary or making something with our hands or uh, that we would seek to keep ourselves from becoming abstracted from God and simply becoming overly focused upon the body. And sometimes we can fall into a, almost a kind of hypochondria as, as human beings, that we begin to notice every little scratchy throat and immediately run to start nursing it. And uh, again, sort of telling our, ourselves that we aren't feeling well. And, uh, and so there's a difference between being very sick and certainly having to give ourselves rest and pampering the body. And this is what the fathers would want us to avoid, you know, being treating ourselves in an overly delicate fashion. Uh, because again, there are certain things that we can fall into uh, in this regard. And one of them is idleness. Uh, to work good 
uh, good, uh, work good, and continually thank Christ. And so our working with a kind of diligence and working hard is a, a way of showing gratitude to God for the gifts that he's given us, but also the strength to be able to labor and to be able to labor not only for ourselves, but for others. And uh, as Ephraim says, we make our hands to labor to do good so that he who has bread will have it. And so we labor not only for ourselves, and we will find this as a repeated theme here in the coming hypotheses, that um, not just to take care of ourselves, but with an eye towards those in need, for those who might be suffering in one way or another. And so we work with the eye to giving alms or providing food for those in need uh, for whatever reason it might be. Um, sometimes we like to live in this kind of splendid isolation. And uh, it's an easy thing uh, for even for Christians to do this. Um, it can be the faith can become sort of cliquish. Uh, we can live in our own little kind of Catholic ghettos uh, rather than seeking to engage those with whom we live and around whom we live. And, uh, and so our eyes are always to be directed outwards, not simply to those who belong to our group, uh, but to those who are around us and to love them, uh, not simply because they share a common faith, but simply because they're made in the image and likeness of God and that to serve them, whether it's to give a cold drink of water uh, or a piece of bread is to serve Christ. Whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. Molly writes, how do hermits balance the solitude with the duty to serve others? Well, you know, they, we often hear within uh, the stories of the fathers, they're doing a certain kind of work with their hands, often very simple, in order to provide uh, for their own meager needs uh, for food. But typically, they would give a pretty significant portion of that to, as alms. Uh, that they saw almsgiving as a central part, certainly, of the spiritual life. Uh, and so even living a life of reduced need, again, it wasn't working for oneself, that uh, whatever was made, a certain portion of that would be given to the poor. And again, you know, I think this is where we have to be careful. I think almsgiving often can be pushed out to the margins of the spiritual life or engaged in in such a way where the other remains sort of invisible to us that we choose to give uh, sometimes, but not to engage. Uh, it's one thing to give out of our abundance financially, and that's an important thing, but sometimes we can still uh, live a life that is isolated from others, not really engaged uh, in the relationship with, with those in our midst. We can go about our work and engage in our family life and with our friends, but uh, still be blind 
to those who are around us and their particular needs. Uh, I think I mentioned here once the, the story of Benedict Rochelle in New York City. Uh, Mother Teresa had come and she was going to give a talk uh, at a university and he was given the responsibility of making sure that she would get there and he and another priest and they were walking down uh, one of the sidewalks in New York City and talking, you know, having a conversation as people are wont to do as they walk. And all of a sudden, these two priests realized Mother Teresa was not with them. They had lost Mother Teresa. <laughs> and they looked down and way down the block, there she was, bent over talking to a person uh, who was living on the streets. That uh, it wasn't just the people in India that she served or that she was attentive to and uh, or in whom she saw Christ. It was in the poor and the humble, and she could not walk past an individual uh, in such circumstances. And again, this is where sometimes it can be a jarring thing for us uh, to consider that, that we can get used to doing that uh, when we, we see people there and for one reason or another, you know, they've fallen on hard times or they're on drugs or alcohol or whatever the reason might be. And because we are busy or we have things to do or we're focused on uh, getting to where we need to be, we can walk by without noticing. And it's not even necessarily a conscious thing, which perhaps is even more problematic that uh, we begin to live our life not conscious of our surroundings and of the individuals within them. He goes on to say, uh, then you shall truly work for the nourishment that which remains everlasting. So to work outside of the context of the care of others uh, and simply to work to provide for ourselves, uh, we do not carry any of that with us. Uh, that it disappears into dust. What we carry with us into everlasting life is those that we attended to. They become our advocates before the judgment seat of God. Uh, we are not going to be asked whether or not we, you know, made a good salary or had a great job or, you know, uh, had a great sa uh, salary or were able to provide for ourselves uh, without any trouble. You know, we're going to be asked, you know, were we attentive to others? Do, do we love? Um, and so not for the nourishment that is lost together with the body. So labor not to find rest. That is to so ma manage to live without work. Uh, that's probably everybody's dream. That's why we pay the Powerball, play the Powerball. <laughs> you know, we want to imagine ourselves in the circumstances where we would not have to work. And, uh, you know, it could still come into our mind. Well, of course, if you win $300 million, you're going to be able to provide for some people. And but often those people are the people we know or are in our families. Uh, but still, the, the daydream is to be able to retire from work and uh, and not have to have that over our heads. And uh, but again, this would be a, a foreign concept. 
uh, for the fathers, uh, uh, not for a number of reasons that, you know, not to be engaged in a kind of work opens us up to idleness and all that flows from that, but it also can prevent us from being attentive to others' needs. And so we can store up a lot for ourselves and perhaps unwittingly excuse ourselves then from the care of others because the focus has been simply, come simply the care of ourselves and our own well-being. Uh, and so again, here, here's where I think even living in the world, you know, where we have certain considerations that the desert monks did not have. Uh, we still have to ask ourselves, are we living a distinctive Christian life when it comes to, to labors? Uh, and, uh, and not only labor, but our care for the other. Anthony writes, we Americans have the farce of the Puritan work ethic, though. We are people not human resources. That is a point of resistance for me. Um, maybe you could clarify just your point. What's your point of resistance, just so I'm clear? That the way we conduct work, you sit here at this cubicle and you work, 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 and you have the 15-minute break, the lunch break, and the other 15-minute break, or particularly despicable is people who work laboring jobs, work overtime, and aren't paid correctly. Mm -hmm. And right or wrong, that's a justification for stealing. My boss isn't giving me what I'm supposed to. He's not treating me fairly. He's just treating me, you work, you work, you work, you work. I need time for my own. And we're disgusting the way we treat each other as animals in our country. Right. Don't forget to send me some of those pens that you took from, from work. <laughs> no, I no. But, but there are real serious. I see it in sometimes in my work. I know someone who's close to me who's a laborer who says, "Yeah, our boss doesn't give us overtime," right. um, and it's it's really really despicable in my opinion. Right, that's true. Uh, to be to give a laborer their fair wages, uh, you know, certainly this should be distinctively Christian and. Uh, and we even hear it within the Christians, you know, the laborer is worth, you know, deserves his pay. And uh, it's a strange society we live in because on one level we overvalue work in the sense of seeking our identity in it and purpose. And, you know, if we are to lose the job, you know, sometimes the identity is destroyed. Uh, but uh, then uh, we also aren't attentive, as you said, to treating people with dignity or sometimes giving a fair wage is, a, is another one uh, for the work that is done. And also very peculiar that we overvalue certain kinds of work and undervalue the, the things that really have importance for society as a, as a whole. Uh, there's an imbalance there. And uh, I think on some level, this has uh, an impact upon the minds of people in a culture. You know, when there are athletes that make, you know, millions of dollars or where there's these obscene sums uh, that are made or by some, you know, heads of companies and, and things like that where, 
you know, the, the, you know, those who work for the company are barely squeaking by, but, you know, or the company's not doing well and still the CEO is taking, you know, this huge salary or giving, receiving a huge raise. And so there are a whole lot of things here, you know, certainly that I think for those living in the world, uh, what the monks are saying here uh, that we would have to address and apply, you know, again, what how, what is the distinctive view of work that a Christian has, uh, both in terms of its end, uh, but how we engage in it. And these are going to come up in some of the the future hypotheses, uh, but the churches, you know, throughout, uh, especially the last century, uh, I think, provided us with social teachings uh, that are often neglected. We don't read them enough in terms of the value and the dignity of human labor, all the things that we were just discussing, uh, the documents that have encyclicals that have come from, uh, from Rome, often we aren't as attentive to those things as we should be. Okay, so this brings us to the end of hypothesis number three. And uh, there's a lot of footnotes here that describe some of the things mentioned, the, the group of the, uh, uh, that fell into the her heresy of, you know, kind of quietism, if you want to read those on, on your own. Uh, but we'll pick up now with hypothesis number four. Uh, to what end a monk should work and for what amount of time and what kind of work he should perform. And again, this is, these are all things that I think are very important for our, our day and age. You know, I, when I was working in campus ministry, I had a young man uh, who had the opportunity to work on an oil rig. And I don't know if you know about this kind of work. It's not only dirty and dangerous, but one makes a ton of money. Uh, but you're out on this rig for months on end. And there's no opportunity to participate in the sacramental life, to receive communion or to go to confession and things like that. And so what choice, you know, it's, it was a qualm of conscience. You know, what choice does one make? Do I take this good job that would provide me with these, all these opportunities, but also money? Uh, or do I look for something else that's going to allow me to stay connected to what is most central uh, to my life? And, uh, and because, you know, the money is so valued, it can be a difficult choice for many to make that uh, decision to say, no, I'm not going to take it, even though it would offer a lot. So first, from the Geronticon, once several brothers visited a great elder, the elder asked the first brother, what work do you do, brother? Abba, I plate ropes, he answered. May God weave a crown for you, my child. Then he asked the second brother, and you, what do you make? Rush mats, he replied. God will strengthen you, my child. In turn, the elder asked the third brother, and you, what work do you do? I make, I think that is, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Is it sieves or does anybody know? I'm not familiar with the term. Woven from rushes, my elder. God will protect you, my child, he responded. 
Afterwards, he likewise spoke to the fourth brother, and what work do you do? I'm a calligrapher, he answered. You know what is needed, the elder said in response to him. Finally, he asked the fifth brother, and what do you, and, and at what, and at what do you work? I weave linen cloth, the fifth brother replied. In such things I am not involved, the elder responded. So if one were just to read the first part of this, it might be a little confusing. You know, what is he saying to them uh, in these uh, responses that are similar or with subtle differences to them? Uh, and because the work all seems to involve work with one's hands. And yet there's even th these distinctions being made in how he responds to them, uh, including the last one, in such things I'm not involved. And again, it seems a little curious, what could he mean by that? Do I, that I don't do that, or I'm not familiar with that, or is he saying something more? With these answers, the elder meant specifically the following. The brother who plaited ropes, if he took care, was weaving together with God a crown for himself. So the one who is doing the simplest of labors would be the one who would be able to have a constant remembrance of God, even in the midst of his work. He would be able to provide for himself, but he chose a work uh, with the hands that would not be overly involved the mind or the thoughts. And so he could do the work undistracted uh, throughout the course of the day and be attentive to God. Crown, you weave a crown for yourself before God. The brother who was making rush mats needed strength since his work was exhausting. So more than plating ropes to make mats involved greater tension and was a greater labor so physically it would be more demanding uh, so he would need uh, uh, extra strength from God he was was making these uh, did anybody look that up by chance somebody google it uh, sieves needed protection from God since he sold them in villages so you know the the one would have to it's a strainer thank you Rebecca a sieve, yeah, a strainer. So, you know, he would have to take this to market in particular uh, to sell. And so would have to engage more uh, other, other people in conversation. Uh, he could not simply drop off his work to be sold, uh, but would have to be there as a kind of huckster, if you will. Uh, the calligrapher had need of, a hum of humbling his heart, for his art brings pride to those who are not vigilant. And so because of its beauty and uh, perhaps the demand uh, for those who are skilled at it, there would be the danger of, of pride, of being praised uh, for the quality of the work done. You know, nobody's going to praise you for uh, or making a rope out of... Uh, out of uh, reeds, uh, but for calligraphy, you know, that would come into play. Uh, to the brother who wove linen fabric, the elder said that he had no involvement since this man was occupied by business pursuits 
and not with the handiwork appropriate to a monastic. For it from afar, one for if from afar one sees someone supporting himself by making baskets, rush mats, and sieves, he knows that this is a monastic because his handiwork is made from a plant and can be burned by fire. But when one beholds a fabric salesman, he says, come, here come the hawkers, since this is the, a worldly work and is not profitable for very many monks, that is. So uh, the one who is engaged in perhaps what we would see uh, the more valuable work, making linen cloth, uh, is going to be making a good deal more money. And the, the value of what he's producing is going to be seen as greater. Whereas the things made by a typical monk of the time would be something that had so little value that it could be easily burned and you know come to come to nothing and for, you know for us when we when we read this we might see well okay that seems a little bit extreme but again for monks who left the world and were seeking to live in this solitude uh, as well as to avoid the allure of avarice uh, and who are seeking to live rather in, in the moment uh, to not only provide for themselves, but to provide for others and to trust in God that it wouldn't, you know, to make linen wouldn't seem to be an appropriate kind of labor. And, uh, you know, if we were to look at this ourselves, we would have to ask, well, are there certain forms of labor uh, for Christians living in the world that might not be something that we would uh, choose to do. And uh, and I, I think it's an important question because there are certain forms of labor that are so demanding that they can pull an individual away, for example, from their family. Or they might uh, demand uh, a certain... Uh, time spent in labor, that it really makes it impossible to have a deep prayer life, that the amount of time spent at work is so great that it becomes very difficult uh, to be most attentive to prayer. You know, that relationship with God begins to be pushed further and further out to the, the margins. And, uh, and so... I think these things do speak to us. Uh, Anthony writes, as a matter of historical note, in the Middle Ages, cloth was the first commodity and a source of wealth. We were, weavers were treated poorly, like with the way we treat uh, robots. The heresy of Aldensianism spread among weavers, perhaps during their social condition. Uh, I see, yeah, that's an interesting thought you know that it was uh, a source of wealth but you're right those who made it uh weren't treated well or paid well for their their labors even though it was often a very difficult job you know not only making it but dying it from what i understand too uh so yeah and i see what you say you're saying about the waldensians St. Francis of Assisi comes to mind. He left his dad's linen business to live the monastic life. 
Right. And uh, I think part of it was, is, you know, seeing the po great poverty of those who surrounded his father's wealth and provided for the wealth of the family. Uh, how to see oneself as remaining within that, uh, especially when he becomes awakened uh, to how drastic the difference was between how these individuals were living and how his family lived. And even how he had in, incorporated some of his father's attitudes. So, you know, we're stepping a little bit further into this, you know, what end should a work have and what amount of time? Uh, first, so first, I think we dealt here with the, the end of it. Uh, again, it's, it's not meant to make us rich beyond belief and in order that we might also not have to work. Abba John the eunuch, when he was young, asked a certain elder, how is it that you can do the work of God with ease while we, since we are overcome by fatigue, cannot do so? The elder replied, we can do this since we place the work of God first in order and consider the satisfaction of bodily needs totally secondary. While you, on the contrary, give primary significance to the satisfaction of your bodily needs and reckon the work of God insignificant, and thus you get tired. For you do not reflect on the words that the Savior addressed to his disciples. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. So, working first for the things of God, and no matter how often we hear that, uh, we call it into question whenever we are presented with something that has a great uh, uh, demand for our attention. And so the temptation is to uh, uh, bypass that relationship with God, to make it secondary, and to give our first energy and attention to the things of this world. <clears throat> and, you know, again, in talking to students over the course of the year, years, this can be uh, uh, a problem, but also for those living in the world. You know, I do not have time for a deep prayer life. And again, you know, this can be one of those excuses the gospel talks about, ex causa, freeing one from the charge of living for God and choosing the kingdom first in our life that we create a plausible lie that this is of such importance that it demands my attention. And we are very good at rationalizing and creating a lifestyle for ourselves that demands more and more money or uh, creates a lifestyle where we want a certain amount of entertainment and this requires more and more money as well. And so rather than being satisfied with what is modest, we can begin to put ourselves in a position where, again, labor uh, necessarily becomes something that we have to be concerned about first. Uh, because if we weren't, we could lose all that we possess and that we've chosen to give meaning uh, or have give meaning to our life. Whereas if our, our focus is upon God, 
then again, we have this capacity for discernment, as we've talked about in Climacus and as well in Evercatinus. Uh, you know, when we have humility and we are focused upon God and we know strength and grace comes from him, we're able to see the work that he desires us to do and the way he wants us to do it and to trust also in his providence that our work is not driven by anxiety or fear, let alone avarice. You know, fear and anxiety can be a very powerful thing. And, uh, and in the end, it, it does not bear fruit for us. Uh, the last line here where he refers to scripture is seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. Uh, you know, God is aware of what is needed and will provide for that. And if we are focused upon him, we become free uh, from the kind of unnatural anxiety that the world places upon us to achieve a certain amount of things or to be driven by our passions where it is our attachment to worldly goods that drives our labor. And when we're working under anxiety or fear, we do not work efficiently or well. And so they put this question to, to Abba John, how is it that you're able to do all this work? And part of what he's saying to them is that, you know, we, we place God first. And so as we enter into that work, we enter into it with the strength and the clarity that God provides. And so we're able to make our way through it with greater ease. We're able to see what needs to be done. When we're confronted with difficulties, we're able to make our way through them and solve them, uh, again, without this mental strain that we often uh, have when our, we become more and more detached from God. Number three, a brother question an elder. What can I do, he said, since I'm upset on account of my handiwork? I try to plate ropes, but I cannot work. The elder answered him, Abba Sissos has said that we should not occupy ourselves with work that gives us rest and which pleases us. So, you know, I, I, I try to plate, rope, plate ropes, but I can't do it. And in other words, I don't like it. And I can't bring myself to do it and do it well. And so I want to be able to do something else. And so he calls to mind here, Abba Sisso saying, you know, sometimes work is work. And we've often lost sight of that. You're, you're not always going to enjoy it. And sometimes you're called simply to do what is necessary to provide for yourself or what is asked in obedience of you. And, uh, you know, we, we live in a day and age where people will quit jobs before they have found other jobs for themselves. You know, they lose all sense and, uh, you know, they don't like the job or like somebody at the job. And so will quit before having found employment to be able to provide for, for themselves. And, uh, or often, you know, spend uh, so much time daydreaming about other things that they would want to do 
that they aren't again attentive to what's immediately at hand uh, or, or want to excuse themselves from certain kinds of work. We talked a little bit about this the last time that always in life, there are things that are asked of us or that we need to be attentive to for the greater good and simply out of love for our family or our community or the care of our home. So sometimes we're going to have to plunge the toilet or mop the floor or take the garbage out, all these kinds of things. And we cannot be saying, well, I, you know, I just can't do this. I'm just not good at it. Uh, uh, I think I was talking to somebody about this, about married couples who often uh, tell each other the jobs they hate the most. And, uh, and so that the one who doesn't mind it can do that particular work and, you know, and the job that it's hated by the other, the other one will, will pick up. And on one level, that's a good thing, you know, it creates kind of harmony and they are able to lighten each other's burden. Uh, but on another level, I think we have to be careful of not taking that too far. Um, I was always you know, sort of impressed with my, my father in this regard. He was a hard worker and dis disciplined, and he was known as being a good worker. Uh, but he, he never took that to extremes in terms of climbing the ladder. There was a natural movement there that took place simply over the course uh, of the years. But I think he had this clear sense that work is work and you work hard and it's not always going to be pleasing. And there are going to be days where that you don't want to go in. And, uh, and so that was always a, a strong example for me. And uh, there's a priest I knew who worked with somebody, her name was, is Jan Grice. And uh, he worked at the Newman Institute with her for a while. And he said it was great working with her because she would come in every day and she would have a list of all the things that would need to be done. And she said, okay, let's start with the hardest things first and make our way through it. And so it's counterintuitive. You know, oftentimes we, to avoid work, will, you know, pick the stuff that can be easily or quickly done but is not as important. Whereas in her wisdom over the course of the years, she understood that one works more fruitfully and accomplishes uh, things in greater measure when you don't avoid that which is distasteful or that which is uh, much more difficult in terms of daily labor. And so, you know, I sort of take what is being said here as similar to that, you know, don't, don't be, don't come to a monastery looking for glamorous jobs, you know, you know, you come here to work for a particular reason, to humble oneself and to be able to pray and to provide for yourself. Number three, uh, I'm sorry, number four, a brother asked Abba Biar, what can I do to be saved? The elder answered him, go and make your stomach small and your handicraft little and remain in your cell without agitation. Then you will be saved. That is, live without worry, in moderation and with self-control. 
ever so simple and beautiful for a month. You know, again, he's writing here for a monk and responding to a monk. But to lay it out there clearly for him, make your stomach small. You're here to fast, to, to reduce the appetites. And so you don't labor and engage in a labor that's going to create a lumberjack hunger, you know, where you're going to want to, you know, eat everything that's set before you. You work to provide what is necessary for the day and that might allow you to fast, to not uh, have to eat too much. And so work with moderation, self-control, and without worry. So you're doing your little handicraft, but you're not worry, worried about making a big business out of it. So you're not growing it beyond what it needs to be. Uh, so that you, when you go back to your cell, for contemplation, you're you're not agitated with what you've left behind. You see how they could work. You know, nobody's going when they leave their work of plating ropes. They're not going to go back to their cell and think, "Oh, I I really should have made that rope better," or "I could have made a few more ropes." They they would leave it and uh, respond to the bell for prayer or go back to their cell for prayer and not be agitated about uh, not doing something uh, beyond what was is necessary. And I think this is an important thing for us because sometimes, uh, you know, Philip Neary had this little phrase that's always stuck with me. He says, we are often the carpenter of our own crosses. And one can interpret that a lot of different ways. We can create crosses in our life. We create a lot of strife between ourselves and others, but we can also create burdens for ourselves. We can pursue certain things, take certain paths in our life that complicate our lives and make them much more difficult, uh, that we reach beyond ourselves and sometimes reach beyond even what we really want because it holds within it a certain dignity, or we know that it will be valued uh, in others' eyes, or we will think more of ourselves because of it. But then all of a sudden we realize, oh my gosh, I've just taken upon myself something that is going to absorb my attention. And, uh, but what is that going to do to my life or to the things that really I value or are of a certain moral importance, attending again to others or family or to the ill. You know, if I fill my time, you know, we at any time we add something to our life, we have to remove something. And we often don't realize that. We don't have an infinite amount of time. And so we can take on more and more to the point that we don't do our work well, but also our hearts and minds are filled with ag agitation. And we can make our lives miserable because of it. There's something to be said for a simple life. And sometimes those who are the most joyful, you know, have, you know, these hidden lives and they go about their work and, uh, and there is a kind of simplicity there. It's often ego 
that can make us pursue certain things. And we have to be very careful about that because, you know, our ego can make us pursue things that, you know, are benign or even good, but is it really something that's good for us or our well-being or our sanctification, or is it going to lead us in harm's way? Any thoughts or comments? Okay, there is a comment here. Amali says, how much work is enough to not be slothful or idle? Secular life does not let you step down or slow down. It feels more and more like it's an all or nothing choice. That's right. I, I think it's often true because I think when you live in a world where identity is not uh, shaped by Christ, I came across a little quote from Dostoevsky where he said, uh, the West has fallen because it has lost Christ. That's the only reason, he says. And so if in our life we lose Christ uh, and work is made an all or nothing thing, and so we're told your value as a human being is being uh, a resource that is productive. And outside of that, uh, you know, your life doesn't have meaning. And so you can be cast aside easily for somebody else who will do that to that job and uh and so when a culture breaks down and and god disappears from that picture then think about how individuals become you know how, how they are looked looked upon as, as pawns to be used in one way or another and not just in work sometimes in very sick sick kinds of ways they become commodities and uh and so uh, the question here is a good one. How much is enough? And I think it's a heart that has been formed by the love of Christ that informs us then of what is enough, that guides and directs us to say, okay, this is what I need to provide for myself and others. That beyond this is to... Uh, create an imbalance in my life, both in my capacity to love God and to love others. From St. Ephraim the Syrian again. Brother, look after yourself with all assiduity, for the evils of the enemy are many and diverse, and he employs many ploys. Sometimes the crafty one brings you sluggishness in your handicraft and attempts to draw you away from your work by disinterest so that you will become involved in work which is not proper. And having drawn you out of your cell, he causes you to wander aimlessly here and there and to neglect your handiwork. Another time, should you resist him by patience and concentration, he will war with you in a different way. That is, he will inspire you in your more eagerness in your work than you should indeed show through greed and love of material things, giving you strength to work day and night at your work so as to interfere, if possible, with your prayer and monastic service. 
So these two things, you know, he can create a kind of sluggishness or disinterest. And so you can see this in a monastery or uh, in a skeet or, uh, you know, or simply those gathered in the desert that one begins to wander around looking at what others are doing and uh, seeing, if, you know, if what they're doing is more interesting. And so stand there idly by watching other people work, you know, it's uh there's a you know joke about sometimes the, the guys who work on the street how often there will be a dozen of them and one guy digging one guy digging a hole you know <laughs> you wonder what's going on there <laughs> and uh and so you know this can happen to the monk as well distracted like ah oh, this is boring let me go see what brother joe is doing and maybe watch him for a bit or just to wander aimlessly around rather than being attentive. But, you know, if we are diligent, isn't it interesting that he can give us this sense of strength? Like I, I have so much, he almost makes us like a person who's manic. I can work. I love this work and I, I can do it day and night. And, and this way I'll be able to provide for myself and maybe provide for, for others. But in the process, you know, he's always late for the prayers or doesn't show up at all because he's so uh, involved or immersed in, in his labor. And so really what's at the heart of the life can be lost. Uh, again, you know, if a monastery takes up a certain labor that takes over, you know, monasteries in the West have really changed a lot. Sometimes they've become too large, you know, like hundreds of monks or, you know, where just managing that becomes impossible or they've taken on certain labors, you know, universities, schools and things like this. It's a much different way of looking at the monastic life and looking at work because while those things are good, they certainly require a lot, and for a monastic, that is. Now, you know, there are other orders that may be more active in the West where they still have, you know, a strong prayer life. But even there, uh, sometimes the, the nature of the work, if the monastery or the convent is not careful, can take over where it absorbs the mind of the abbot or the superior and uh, the amount of time that is spent is increased. Whereas these monks often maybe, you know, might work for a part of a day, which would be maybe more like half of what we would work in a given day. And the other half of the day would be you know, maybe being attentive to things around the monastery or engaging in the prayer, of course, and then uh, study of scripture and things like that. And so the, the idea of a religious community existing for a particular work, I think really wasn't part of the fabric of the, the mind of the fathers and monastic life. Whereas in the West, I think it very, it very much did become that. Certain communities became identified with the labor 
that they did. And everything revolved around that, the kind of studies that their, uh, that their members uh, engaged in, which created a whole other issue then, you know, paying for, you know, the, those studies and, uh, and then the work that was required of them, whether it was nursing or teaching at a university could be far more demanding. And, uh, and so these are, are things that we don't think about, but I think when we consider our work within the world, we can be, the same thing could be done. You know, somebody who bops around from cubicle to cubicle, you know, looking at every, what everybody else is doing, you know, is to avoid labor uh, and, uh, and keep others from doing their work as well or the person who is the first in the office and the last to leave. Uh, uh, and so we, we can fall into the same kind of uh, disorder or imbalance. He goes on to say, beloved, as soon as you sense then that the evil one is undertaking to lead you astray, do not obey him but do all things as they should be done with moderation, laboring too in moderation, so that you are regularly in attendance at gatherings for services and prayer. And the blessing which will come to you through faith will give you strength and grace in every good endeavor. Let us love temperance and let us only seek after that which is absolutely necessary and not after enjoyment. If we pursue enjoyment and avidity, then our toil shall be great, our path unsteady, our grief inconsolable, and our life's careworn. There is need for but one thing, my brothers. As the Lord said, nothing is greater or more valuable than the soul. For this reason, let us seek and take care to make it ready. And let us not spend all of our time caring for the body. Isn't it the, the phrasing there? Uh, ones can, in, can toil at work and it can be so, so great that our path becomes unsteady, our grief inconsolable, and our lives careworn. People's lives can become miserable because they become swallowed up with work. Life becomes work. Everything becomes have to. I have to do this. I have to do that. And whereas a monk, you know, for as ordered as their life might be, they are given this task, but a task that is done, you know, by working hard, but temperately, you know, never to extremes. And so it's not meant to create this agitation uh, of the heart or to beat a person down to the point of exhaustion. There have become there are all these things on social media now of people making videos of themselves weeping. I went to college and I took on a debt of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and I went out and, you know, got a job. But it's really not the kind of job that I expected to get from what my studies and I can barely pay for my, you know, rent and other uh, other things for myself. I'm barely getting by. And this is, you know, what we've kind of cr created. 
uh, it's a destroyer, you know, of religious vocations often that they, most religious communities require a college degree. Because if you come out of college with $100,000 worth of debt, then you have to put off your vocation for years. And then by the time you've paid off that debt, it's unlikely that you're going to enter into a religious community. Religious communities can't absorb college debt. And, uh, but nonetheless, I think uh, people are coming out of college with like mortgage level debt. And, and so think about what that does to your life and how you see your, your life. And I think this is why people then escape into entertainment or distractions simply to push out of mind the oppression of the debt that hangs over them and the lack of freedom that they, they have, sense of freedom that they have about their life. You know, forget about, you know, doing something that you enjoy doing. You know, now your life has become about paying off this debt. And so we do all these kinds uh, of things and more, certainly, that create this kind of careworn life for ourselves because a kind of, of promise is held out to us of the American dream, you know, if, you know, or the college education. And, uh, you know, it's certainly not what it once used to be, you know. Uh, and there are people who, even when I was in college, I think there were relatives that, I, that had, had no college degree, you know, just graduated from high school who were more educated than most college students I knew and even more educated than myself in terms of their understanding of history and, uh, but also their capacity to do things with their own hands, you know, the, the wherewithal, you know, to fix things. And, um, you know, it just, um, and so we've created this culture of anxiety for us, but not one that really is, uh, not one that is life-giving. The work is not necessarily life-giving. So we've come to 8.30, but you know, I, I think this idea of putting God first and having God be what shapes our identity, our sense of purpose, allows us to look at our life, the kind of work we do, how we do it, what it is that we want to be engaged in in our life. Nobody escapes this. You know, as a priest, you know, there more often than I'd like to admit, I've been driven more by a sense of having to get certain things done and get them done in a way that would be pleasing to others or focusing upon certain things that were created because we tell ourselves this is important for the life of the church or ministry. We rely too much upon, you know, technology or, you know, ways of communicating uh, that isn't really rooted in this experiential knowledge of God. 
even the whole seminary process. It's as bad as college. You know, coming out of seminary, you know, diocese and religious communities absorb a huge amount of debt. But most of that education, you have to wonder, is this really preparing somebody to serve others? You know, when it's all within the mind and very little within the heart. So a lot to think about here and we'll have weeks to do it, uh, to unpack it. So, you know, don't just take it at uh, their word. I'd be glad to hear what you have to say, you know, your, your thoughts on what they say about work. Okay, so why don't we close there for, with, for the night uh, with the Our Father as always. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.